Welcome back to Strengthening Recovery Through Strengthening Marriage, The Healing of Pornography Addiction with Dr. Kevin Skinner and Jeff Stewart. This is part six, the vision of long-term relational recovery. And Kevin, what we're going to talk about in this episode is really understanding long-term what couples can look forward to. You know, I think it's critical that we really paint this big picture here. Sometimes people want to hurry their way through it. And I think that that really sets them back in the process of the recovery because their expectations are unrealistic. A person struggling with pornography wants to just be done. And their partner just wants to be over it. They, they want to stop feeling the pain. But really, we're trying to create the vision of this long-term recovery so your expectations are realistic. That's right. And because pornography addiction affects every single part of your life, recovery is going to affect every single part of your life as well. And so what you're going to have is a very different-looking type of relationship and marriage and family. Your parenting will look different. Your marriage will look different. Your friendships will look different. Your, your self-care, everything will look different if you're really in good long-term recovery. So we want to talk about what these indicators look like so you can measure it better. You know, and what's exciting about this, Jeff, is individuals who actually begin to see the picture, they begin to say, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. And what happens is they realize they're shifting from this traumatic life for the female and the sexualized life for the male into a world of it's different. It's not the same. And what this is what I tell every one of the people I work with, your life will not be the same when we're done. If it is the same, then we haven't accomplished what we can accomplish or you aren't to the place yet where you, you will feel long-term recovery. And what couples start to recognize too is as they move away from some of the fear and the trauma and the blaming that goes on early in this process, they start to recognize that the relationship in many cases has grown into a new emerging type of relationship that looks very different from the one they had. And, and in reality, it has to be that way. And it's not to say that either one of them created the problems alone. A lot of the times what happens is that both partners um, unintentionally bring things into the relationship from their past, from their own reactive behaviors that make it hard to connect in the way they really want to. So, Jeff, what would you say some of these measuring sticks are that couples could be looking for in this in this long-term recovery process? And I think that that really needs to be our focus is what are some of these measuring things that couples should look for and say, yeah, we are making progress. I, I can see that now because we, we've, we're doing this. What are some of those things? The first one, the first one is the strength of the attachment bond. That, that is a critical one. And, and we're going to spend some more time on this today. But um, in our fourth episode, we talked about um, you know, addiction and intimacy and really understanding what attachment looks like. So, so if you haven't heard that one yet, go back and listen to that one because that will give you a better foundation for what I'm talking about here. But, but really measuring the strength of the attachment bond is being able to say, can I get to my partner? Do they care how I feel? And both people need to be able to ask this question and get, and get really uh, safe, suitable answers to that in the form of, yeah, my partner cares how I feel. I can get to them. They'll be there for me. And I feel close to them. I feel accepted by them, even though I struggle and I have reactive behaviors and, and so on, and I'm human, but I'm not alone. And, and what I call that is emotional intimacy, because the ability to share our emotions, as we discussed in the fifth session about open communication and disclosure, that's really what we're talking about here. A measuring stick is the openness, that type of emotional intimacy. And I, and I put it this way, whether pornography is in part of your relationship or not, I tell this to all couples, the ability to share emotions, good and bad, with each other 
is an, an indicator of relationship success. Absolutely. In, in the last episode, we talked about alexithymia, the, the inability to, to share or discuss or talk about feelings. And one of the measures that I use with guys long-term in recovery, and even with partners too, is an inventory called the Emotional Processing Inventory developed by Rory Reed and uh, Jim Harper out of Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. And they came up with a 16-item questionnaire. And I'll just give you a little sampling of some of the questions on here because these are the kind of measures we use to see how somebody's doing long-term in recovery. I am open with others about how I feel. My feelings help me gain new insights about myself. I'm able to identify my needs through understanding my emotions. Real quick, let me make a comment on that one right there. Mm-hmm. I'm, under, I'm able to understand my needs through identifying or understanding my emotions, something to that effect, right? Mm-hmm. We all have needs, but beneath that is our, our emotions. And in the process of understanding our emotional needs, that kind of maturity, emotional maturity, allows us to be more open with ourselves and in relationships. So it's a, that's a very important question. It is. It's very important because our emotions tell us what we need. And they, they, they really point us to those deep needs that are part of building safe, connected relationships. And so some of the other questions are things like, my emotions are a gateway to understanding myself more accurately. I'm able to talk about my feelings honestly. And then one more, I'm able to accurately identify my feelings. And so what I find is that guys in early recovery in most cases have a really hard time with some of these questions because, one, they're numbed out from the pornography. They don't feel anything. They're so cut off from their true self. And partners are oftentimes cut off from their feelings because of the trauma, whether that's from the disclosure of the pornography and or connected to other events in their lives that have made it hard for them to feel and express those feelings and so on. So being able to connect with this is so protective because, again, pornography addiction is not about sex. It's about emotional mismanagement and intimacy problems, the inability to connect and feel and use those feelings to direct your life. And and uh, using unhealthy methods like pornography to, to regulate feelings and so on. And often, it's not just pornography. Any addictive behavior, spending money, drugs, alcohol, food, gambling, all of those things are typically to fill a void right. or a need, as we've previously discussed. So in the long-term strengthening of, of an individual and the relationship, it is the power to be more emotionally attuned to self. Right. And so... What I find with couples when they're doing long-term recovery work, they're learning how to ask for what they need in healthy ways and reach for their partner. Um, just like I've said in the previous episode, reaching in an um, uh, reaching as a human being when we're in distress is an automatic reflex. I've got a little uh, six-month-old baby girl in my family uh, that just joined us this year, and she is reaching, right? She's learned to pull her arms up whenever she sees that we're coming. When she's in distress, now her arms go up. She's looking for us to come get her, and that reach is instinctive. She has no language. She has no ability to to do any higher-order thinking, but she has this reach. And what I find is that when people are in distress, they reach. A guy that has an addiction to pornography is reaching for pornography as a way to to decrease his distress. A partner is reaching in anger as a way to decrease her distress. And so couples learn over time what that reach is about, where it's coming from, what they really need, and then they start to reach in healthier ways instead of trying to get those healthy needs met in unhealthy ways. And... 
in that process of reaching out to a partner, if they've created the environment that we talked about, that safe environment where it's safe to do so, it's comfortable, growing in comfortableness, I should say, then what happens is the mind actually relaxes. And it's what I call psychological intimacy. Right. The mind literally trust, honesty, commitment, loyalty, they begin to develop. And when you take out those things, you're going to have problems. And so with this, we're trying to create the environment where trust and honesty are, are a given. It's happening. I'm open. Even in the disclosure that we were talking about earlier of a relapse, that can build the psychological intimacy in just sharing openly a, a relapse. Mm-hmm. But taking that a step further, it's I'm committed to the relationship. And that strengthens the mind in saying, you know what, I know my partner's committed to us, to us. And then that loyalty is working toward getting rid of eliminating the things that distract you from intimacy. Right. Exactly. And knowing that your partner is there, that you can get to them, and that when you reach, they respond is really a good measure of long-term recovery. A lot of people measure long-term recovery, understandably, um, in the ways that they measured early recovery, which is, is this thing still happening? Well, in long-term recovery, um, that's not really the best measure of how well things are going. Um, I've often said that you can have sobriety but not have recovery. Right. Right? You can, you can white-knuckle your way to proving to yourself that, look, I'm not doing this problematic behavior anymore, so I'm fine but you're still cut off from your emotions. You still don't have any sort of intimacy. Your sex life is is very disconnected and difficult. And uh, really, you look pretty much the same. You're just not acting out sexually versus a couple, lots of people I've seen in long-term recovery who still are struggling with triggers a little bit. They're, they're dealing with some problematic habits and things. But their level of insight and accountability and honesty and transparency and intimacy and their desire to reach and connect and take risks and struggle through this, those people, in my opinion, are doing way better recovery work, even though they may have occasional slips, than the person who's just going to take the stiff upper lip and just muscle their way through, not acting out, but are completely disconnected from themselves and others. And the, really what I'm looking for here as a clinician is what I call emotional congruity. Yes. I'm congruent with my emotions. And in other words, if I'm having a hard day, I'm not bottling it up, acting angry. I'm actually able to say, rough day. I'm trying to process what happened at work. I'm a little frustrated. That conversation with a spouse is so much better than coming home and why isn't dinner on the table or you kids are bothering me and that anger comes out or the frustration comes out and your spouse may think it's related to pornography or something sexual when in reality it was a hard day at work. And so emotional congruity is being able to say when you come home as an example or, or you're interacting for the first time in the afternoon or evening when you get back together – it's being able to be emotionally congruent and say, you know, it's been an up or down day and be able, to, be able to disclose that. Right. And that's such an important thing because it's about saying, I feel what I feel and that's okay. I'm human. I feel frustrated and I talk about it that way. I'm, you know, I'm scared and I admit it. And, and that level of congruency allows you, I, again, to, to recognize triggers and vulnerabilities and things that created the problematic behavior in the first place and... 
educate you about how to reach to your partner and build that long-term intimacy, which is really what we're talking about. You know, and when couples do that, then it shifts into other areas of intimacy. I mean, now we're talking about they, they're open emotionally. We talked a little bit about touch, but they're more likely to want to be sexual when they're emotionally connecting. And so it, it you can't change one part of the emotionally intimate or the intimate relationship without influencing the other part of it, both for negative or for positive. So when you're not emotionally congruent, your spouse isn't really going to be too interested in sexual intimacy because they don't feel like they're emotionally attuned or close to you. Right. That emotional attunement builds desire, and desire is a critical component for sexual health, healthy sexual intimacy. And without that desire there, really what you're just doing is putting a couple bodies together, and it's just not really the same. And so, again, in episode five with the, um, the, the discussion on restoring trust and so on, I talked a lot about Barry McCarthy's work on restoring sexual uh, harmony. And in his book, Rekindling Desire, he talks a lot about making the focus more on connection and desire than on trying to have sexual intercourse. So couples in long-term recovery learn over time to be expanding their range of touch and closeness so that it's not this all-or-nothing thing of, well, my wife doesn't want to have sex with me tonight, so therefore she doesn't care about me, versus, you know, how close can we be tonight? I really want to be close to you, which is about desire. I want to be with you. You mean something to Mm -hmm. me. You mean everything to me. And connection so why don't we just spoon tonight or just, or just talk and hold each other or just caress each other? And then that becomes part of the bigger part of, and I, and I love what, what Barry McCarthy says, you know, this idea of you're making love all the time. You're creating love. You're, you're, you're expanding love all the time. And making love isn't just about having one sexual act. It's about ongoing connection, ongoing desire, and having a huge palette of touch options available to you. And... That requires us then to have the other kinds of intimacy as you're describing. Again, you aren't, you can't have one kind of intimacy without the other. If you're not communicating, if you're not talking, if you're not being emotionally intimate and vulnerable and congruent, it's not likely that you're going to feel comfortable being sexual. And the other part of that is there is a cognitive kind of intimacy, an intellectual kind of intimacy. And I tell all couples, as we start to progress, you actually start to talk about other things besides the sexual things that you've been focused on. I mean, in the early phase, and this is part of what I think the vision of long term, you'll know you're making progress when the focus is no longer just on the sexual part of it, but now you're talking about future goals together, things that you want to accomplish. I remember one couple came with a significant amount of marital uh, difficulties, and it was an interesting experience in seeing them progress when their focus shifted from their marital discord to how can we make our backyard look good? And I sat back, and, and when, that sh- when it shifted, that was a significant part for me as a therapist. I realized they're no longer focusing on the problem. They're starting to dream together again. Right, and I think couples in long-term recovery have the ability to integrate the past, the present, and the future. They're able to hold all of them. The past doesn't threaten them anymore. They're not overwhelmed by it. They don't ignore it. It's been assimilated or integrated into their into their marriage, into who they are as individuals and as a couple. It's part of the story, and they don't discard it as if it's just this bad-awful thing they never want to talk about again. And the present of what's going on, and like you said, this future, and, and that ability to, to hold all of those together is such a great indicator 
of long-term recovery. And and when the uh, language starts to shift that way, when they start to talk more about, hey, we could do this, or it's financial planning for the future, it's, you know, what 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 do we see in our children? Are they making progress? What can we do as parents to, to maybe help influence them in more positive ways? Or how can we help this child with their grades? And you start to focus on those things together, united. Again, we're shifting that language from focusing on the problem to focusing on what we want in our future and creating it. Not ignoring the past. We understand it. But we're also beginning to create what we want, what we want our relationship to be like. I, I put it this way. Uh, couples often forget to set couple goals. Right. Uh, individuals don't do it very much. I mean, they found that 3% of individuals write down their goals, write down their goals, 3% of Americans. This is study after study after study. 3% write down their goals. Well, how many couples write down their couple relationship goals? And I would say it's even less than that. In fact, I'd say very rarely do couples actually write down their relationship goals, spending time together, how the, when they're going to retire, get out of debt, uh, how many, you know, what they're going to do with their kids, goals with that. I, I mean, it's, it could go on and on. And couples, in fact, my wife and I had this conversation at the end of last year and said, what goals do we want to have as a family this year? And a very conscious focus begins to shift the attention away from problems. But my wife and I, what a great experience it was for bonding us together. Right, and so much in early recovery is organizing around the problem. It's so much about organizing around the trauma. And that's understandable because when we're, when we're in trauma, when we're dealing with that, our mind becomes fixated on the danger to protect us. And that's a very understandable thing. And then as we're trying to rebuild the bond and make sense of what's real and that process that can take, you know, six months to a year or longer of trying to get reoriented and, and you know, grounded and making sense of what's real, what's not real. What we're talking about is past this stage, right? We're not talking about early recovery here. We're talking about being able to say, you know what, my partner, you know, if you're, if, if you're, uh, if you're dealing with an addiction, you're saying, uh, my partner is working his program of recovery. He is consistent. He's coming to me. I have a sense of what's real. I believe it. Where our the the closeness and the openness and the relationship is starting to feel more authentic, and I feel like I can get to him, and he's coming to me, and we're doing this back and forth, and now it's a great it's a great launching pad for being able to say, now that I know sort of that we have a future together, now that I trust and that we both feel like uh, we we've experienced enough to know that this thing is is a new emerging type of relationship. It's different. It's going to grow. This is about setting the rudder and saying okay. This is where we want it to go. And I, and I think that that can't happen until that reorganization process has happened. We have to have the foundation. That's right. And, and, but, but one of those measuring sticks that that foundation is getting in place is that you start to set those goals. Right. And you start to be able to see the future and look more towards it rather than looking back towards the pain. Right, and I and I see so many partners in early recovery saying things like, "I don't even know if I want this relationship. Who is this guy? Who am I? What's going on here?" There's so much disorientation. But then, as you start to the dust settles and the the attunement and the recovery behavior start to happen more consistently, and the couple starting to rethread this thing, then really it becomes critical to not just let it drift and just hope it gets better. It's about being proactive about it and saying. This new emerging marriage, we actually have the ability as a couple to direct it. And I often ask this question, once they've established that foundation, what would you like your marriage to look like? I mean, let's look at your marital history. When have you felt most connected? Well, in the last six months. 
well, what, what, in the last six months, is you guys have been going through some trauma, some difficult things. So, so that's what you know. You've obviously been doing something in the last six months that's been obviously helpful. But what what would the ideal marriage look for you, like for you guys? And that is the question that gets them thinking, that gets them moving forward once they've established that foundation. Yeah, and this is such an exciting part because this is where they can really integrate, like we said, the past, present, and the future. And being able to say, you know, there were things that my parents said that I really thought were healthy uh, and so on. I remember when I was uh, engaged, or actually I was having the interview with my father-in-law to ask my wife's hand in marriage. And he said something really important to me at the end of the interview after he uh, agreed to let me marry his uh, his daughter and asking me all the appropriate questions about being an Eagle Scout and other things like that, <laughs> he, uh, he said something really important. He said, you know, Jeff, he goes, all I want you to do is promise me that you'll try and do better than we did. And mm-hmm. I, I thought that was really humble, and I thought that was really powerful because what he's saying is that I want you to look at the past, I want you to make sense of what we tried to do in our marriage, in our family, and I want you and your wife, your new wife, to do something different than that because we did the best we knew how. And I, and I plan to say that to my kids when, the, when, they're, when they're getting married. I think that that's good advice. It's important. And this is what couples in long-term recovery need to recognize. They have permission and I believe the obligation to do. I often tell couples when they're coming in and they're saying, I want a divorce. I hate this marriage. And I'll say, yeah, I, pro- I don't blame you. That, that marriage wasn't working. So let's divorce it. Stay married, though. Mm-hmm. And I love how you put that. Yeah, and let's let's create an emerging marriage. Let's create something that looks different because you're right. That marriage was not working, but don't go out and find another partner to make it to make it because something wasn't going right. And and I again, I certainly have a lot of um, a lot of respect and um, and and I value what people need to do to survive and to be safe in relations. And I don't pretend to be the first to tell somebody they shouldn't get divorced, but I do believe that many, many couples give up too soon in the recovery process and give up on the chance for an emerging marriage. And and if they stay with it and get the right kind of help, they can create a marriage that looks nothing like the one that was affected. And I believe there, Jeff, exactly what you're saying. When When we give up, we anticipate that another person is going to make it better. Right. If our partner is emotionally willing to do the work. They're willing to get to the point where they're doing some self-awareness. They're willing to go to treatment, get help, go to counseling, listen to CDs like these. If they're willing to do those things and participate in the behaviors that we've talked about, then the process then shifts towards personal growth and the relationship can grow. The longer I do this kind of work, Kevin, the more I'm humbled by the tenacity, the fierceness the persistence of these couples to hang in there and do the work that it takes to create real safety and intimacy. They aren't settling for just a second-rate relationship. That's what they were in before, and that's what the addiction created. But they are they are fighting for and creating and digging deep to create a more authentic, connected relationship. And I stand in admiration and deep respect and humility for the in, in these in the presence of these couples, and I've seen them outlast things that I've I've seen people give up on long before. And so, I am the longer I do this, the less inclined I am to say to somebody or to believe internally, oh, we probably ought to ring the bell on this one." I don't ring the bell anymore. I really don't. Mm-hmm. It's very rare that I will ever internally think, 
ah, this one really is pretty dangerous. And that's usually if there's physical safety or other issues. But when it comes to emotional things, man, I'm amazed at how much work people can do and get better if they're both willing to try it. And you're talking about relationship resiliency. That's correct. And and absolutely. In fact, I, I've, like I, I said in a previous show, I've done some a lot of reading on resiliency, uh, Dr. Al Siebert's work, which is phenomenal work on resiliency. And one of the fascinating things that, I mean, you're talking, uh, there's so much research out there about how resilient individuals respond under high levels of stress. And they survive. And what I equate some of these couples to going through is their own trauma associated with it could be anything from from going to war. It's a marital war that they've been to. They're doing it together and they've maybe even created some of this on their own. But what they're doing in that is they are literally becoming resilient individuals who have strength beyond their own. But what was fascinating in his work, and this is the thing that's just stuck out to me repeatedly, he said, what we misunderstand about resilient people is that they have a wide range of emotions. Sometimes they're lazy and sometimes they're the hardest working people. Sometimes they laugh and sometimes they cry. And sometimes they're angry and sometimes they're absolutely delightful and happy. And he said resilient people aren't always shy or always outgoing. They literally come together in this wide range of behaviors, emotions. And that's what I'm seeing in these couples. Sometimes they'll be in the throes of, of anger and wanting to divorce and hurt and pain. And maybe a few hours or a few days later, they're as close as they've ever been. And that's what I want to uh, – that's also for me a measuring stick. When couples are going through this process, the emotional intensity of that says to me they're working at it. Yes. They are working at it. And I too applaud because they're going through things that I would never want to go through. And I admire them for their desire to figure it out. And what they're what they're discovering is that they have a relationship that looks like no other. It's 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 really their relationship, and they've co-created this together. And it's amazing how that you can turn the trauma and the tragedy of an addiction into a catalyst for deeper growth, self-understanding, and relational understanding, and and safety. That secure base becomes that much more secure, where they can really lean on that as a way to feel okay, to really feel healthy, to really feel uh, fulfilled as a human being. It's, it's just a beautiful thing to watch. You know, and one of the other measuring sticks that I see for individuals and couples, and I, I put the, those two together, the individual, whether they're spiritual or not, if they're religious, if, if, they, if they believe in a higher being, I have often seen that these couples, uh, one of those measuring sticks is they begin to be more open with each other in their spiritual growth, might I say, in, in just sharing with each other. They're more open, maybe even praying together. They're more open in their willingness to have heartfelt discussions about their spiritual values. That's right. And this is really about recognizing this the soul or the spiritual part of themselves that's connecting to something bigger than them that put places them in 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 uh, you know the context of being connected to others humanity to god and i had a, i had a case where uh it was very profound for me i had a, I had, a, I had a client who came in who because of involvement with pornography as is normal he questioned god can God love me? Can God forgive me? Uh, I don't feel a connection. I don't feel he's answering my prayers. I don't feel like he cares. And he hadn't had the capacity 
to really share that with his wife because she couldn't hear it. She, she, it was too personal for her. It was just too personal for her. And so when he said, I don't believe God loves me, it triggered so much pain inside of her that she just distanced herself away from him. And it left him out there hanging. But when he came to therapy, it was very interesting. As we discussed that process of feeling a distance from God because of the pornography, and I described to him that pornography creates a numbness. It's hard to feel emotions, and spirituality is an emotion that we feel a closeness to. So I said, it's not God only. Who do you, who do you feel close to right now? And he began to understand that the pornography had numbed him away from relationships and even an attachment to deity. And when he understood that, his, his definition, his understanding of spirituality with God changed immensely. And... That is a critical part, in my opinion, of couples' ability to be able to share that part of the relationship. And whether they're religious or not, most people have a belief in a higher, some type of a higher being. And when they can share that with each other, it's a deepening that I often see as couples continue in recovery. Yeah, that's really neat. I, I, so, so we're, so we're talking about we're talking about couples being able to reach for each other to connect, to, to ask for what they need, that that's starting to happen in long-term recovery. The touch is more focused now on connection and desire. And then there's a spiritual component where they're really opening up to each other about their spiritual selves and so on and being able to, to talk about uh, their connection to their higher power. And really this is all part of exposing the inner self as well, the deeper intimacy Again, none of this is possible if there's an ongoing addiction, mm-hmm. right? The ongoing addiction numbs them to that. It disconnects it from it, puts them into this deep shame and disconnection. And so you won't be able to see any of this stuff if there's, um, you know, if there's, uh, if there's an ongoing addiction. So this is really a prerequisite uh, to, you know, to getting that part stopped. Um, but again, stopping the behavior, like we said, sobriety is not long-term recovery. It's, it's a prerequisite for it. But it's not the, the sum total. And so, yeah, go and, ahead. And I think there's a critical point there. You can take the addictive behavior out, but something has to go in that void. Yes, exactly. And, and what we're advocating right now is what I firmly believe is at the core, and that's the desire to attach, to have intimacy with another, in particular, your spouse or your partner, another, right. another human being. I find that, couple, that part of this attaching to, to others is obviously – building that primary attachment, which is where your sense of safety, connection, survival is located, and that's got to be in place first, no question about it. But part of the ongoing long-term recovery is that people become less isolated, that they're connecting to friends, they're connecting to their community, again, connecting to God, their higher power, they're connecting to their children, they're becoming more involved in their children's lives and really protecting the next generation. And the couple even starts to reach out together as a as a as a unit to to connect with other friends and so on, and there's and there's a there's a depth of connection that they surround themselves with real relationships with real people. A lot of the times these things are facilitated early on, like I said in previous episodes, by attending a group or by meeting with a counselor or clergy, um, and those are natural bridges. But they're not typically going to be ongoing long term supports, and they have to facilitate you being able to be intimate and connected to a wide range of people um, in addition to your partner. The more compassionate and caring you have outside of self 
And that's really what you're looking at in society. I love what uh, Confucius said. First, you have to take care of yourself as an individual. Then you take care of your family. Then you work towards taking care of your community, your local community. Then you take care of your state. And then you take care of your nation. Yeah. And, and stepwise, I, I, the reason why I like that is it, it puts the core, self, family, and that's really what we have to do. We're trying to nurture that family. But then once we've taken care and we're nurturing that relationship, then the individuals will reach out and naturally want to help other people, which I believe is a fundamental part of this long-term recovery is you begin to serve people. That's what uh, the research on authentic happiness really is showing out there, that service is one of the greatest ways to feel optimistic, helpful, happy, and, and live literally one of these authentic, happy lives. Yeah, Martin Seligman has done some fabulous research in authentic happiness. He has a signature strength assessment you can get from his website, authentichappiness.com or .org, mm-hmm. I believe. And that signature strengths is, is such an important long-term recovery tool because what it does is it allows you to identify what you're good at and then take that to bless other people. And you know, just like the 12th step in the 12-step process is about giving back. And, and we find that that's a natural indicator that somebody is in recovery. We have people come back to our groups, mm-hmm. um, couples that have been in long-term recovery. They come back and guest speak free of charge. They don't want to be paid. Th- for them, it's a gift. They want to give back, and they want to talk about their stories as a couple and their growth. And I find that the couples that can come and do that and authentically open up and share with a group of strangers their story – um, are doing some great recovery work. Now, does that mean you have to go around and tell everybody your story? Absolutely not. But it means that you're giving back, you're reaching out, and that will mostly be a product of you discovering those signature strengths, figuring out what you've been blessed with. Everybody has a gift. Not everybody has the same gift, but we use those gifts to help other people. And part of long-term recovery is engaging in that process, and that is so protective as you activate that natural compassion. And it, what's interesting, uh, as couples, uh, it's literally a recovery story. They develop it. They create it. And it's an ongoing story. It's never done. But when they create and share that story with others, I mean, I know a couple locally that they both, they are very active in sharing their story of how they dealt with his pornography addiction. And they're very open about it. They're talking with other people. They're willing to speak in any type of a format because their story, they want to get it out there so other people can see that story. So that's another part. And, and, and some people aren't comfortable sharing the, all of the details, but it is a part of who you become. And you might tell that story to family members or you may f- tell it to s- specific individuals that you trust, like in a group. But that story gets developed and it gets shared and it, it, it literally it enhances the recovery. Right, and you certainly even tell it to each other. You 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 talk about it together. You've, you know, it becomes like the title of the movie. It's sort of the story of us, and it's, and it's really this this uh, this integration of all the dark threads and the light threads in the tapestry, and being able to say, you know, the shadows are as important as the lights, and it's important that that you honor and respect those. Now, you know, as I'm as I'm talking about this in here, I'm, I'm thinking. You know, what would somebody who's just discovered their partner's pornography addiction and they've purchased these uh, CDs and they're listening to it and they're thinking, you know, I don't even know where to start. And they're hearing us talk about all this long-term recovery stuff, and it may seem just so far out of reach. It may seem so overwhelming and maybe even, um, you know, impossible. I hope that as we talk about this, that, w- that one thing will happen, 
is that it may spark even just a little tiny hope that things can look different, that, that the current mess you may be facing and the insecurity and fear, that, that maybe there's just a little bit of hope in there that this thing doesn't have to keep looking like this. It's not going to be a life sentence if both of you are willing to do the work. I was talking with a dear friend recently who's struggled with his own pornography and sexual addiction. And early on, when he first came and talked with me, the the vision of it, it was like, I, I can't comprehend it. His wife couldn't comprehend it. And, and now years removed from it. There's been some ups and downs and just uh, just literally some ups and downs throughout this process. And what was interesting in that is as they've made progress, as they've learned, as they've grown, their communication with me has, has changed to the point where not only are they open and understanding it, they're like, we're starting to get this. It's a process. And, and literally, it's been a three to five year process. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't want people to be discouraged by that. I want them to understand that as... You'll make it. And, and I'm not sharing this just from one couple's experience. Multiple couples. Hundreds. I mean, you, That's we're, right. we're talking, I mean, we wouldn't share these things if we hadn't experienced them. Right. And that's just the reality. When you start to see couples through this tidal wave, so to speak, and they, and they come back, and they may come back. I've had couples come back a year later and just saying, we want to check up. We want to tune up. You know, we, we had a we had a slip or whatever he had a slip or whatever it is, and and then we get back on this progress of of okay, well, let's learn what happened and literally the tools that we talk about. If couples do that, they work through them, they understand it, they communicate. That progress is made, and if there is a, a slip down the road, they're able to communicate it and get back on track rather quickly. Yeah, and I think early on in the recovery process, what is so hard for the couple is for both of them, it's like, I wish this would just go away and we'd never have to look at it or talk about it or think about it again. Okay, understandable. (laughs) This is causing so much pain early in recovery. But in long-term recovery, once the threat of the addiction, the ongoing and the secrecy and the turning away and the, the disc, all that stuff, once that stuff has been settled and there's this sense that the partner's committed, that they're doing active work to understand it. All of a sudden, the reasons for it start to come out. They're understanding their shame, the, the triggers, the, the unhealthy uh, ways of dealing with these unmet needs. And all these things start to come out. And all of a sudden, the landscape of the addiction looks very different. It's gone way beyond just one problematic set of behaviors into this whole range of understanding uh, the complexity of it. What I find is that couples want to talk about all these different parts. They want to understand their parenting starts to change. They start to think of themselves differently. They understand their own reactions to stress and to family dynamics and to, and to God and to other kinds of things. And so the, the discussions just multiply tenfold, and there's so many opportunities and entry points for having deep, intimate, healthy conversations. And so what starts out as the tip of the iceberg and this very traumatic, confusing, painful uh, betrayal, if the work, if you stay in the work and keep walking through it, it opens you up to this, this vast, rich array of topics and areas to grow as a couple and as an individual. You know, and one of the things that, uh, I often tell couples, and this is kind of to reboot the expectations and it's this. This is not a 100-yard dash. We are running a marathon. And if, if you've ever ran a long distance, 
You don't run the whole race like you're running a 100-yard dash. There's going to be a process here where you're going to develop skills and you're going to have times where you're going to, you're going to hit bumps in the road. There's going to be times where in your training of, of running a marathon, you don't run a marathon without practice. You don't create change that we're talking about by running the 100-yard dash. You, you run two miles. You run three miles. You run four miles. You build up to six miles. Then you keep going. You run a half marathon. And then you run 15 miles. Then you run 18 miles. And then you stay at 18 miles uh, once a week. And then you back down to 15 miles. You run down, and, and you never go more than 18 miles. Then when you're at the day of the marathon, you run all 26. But that process is literally a building process. And when I talk with couples, I try to give them the expectation of, you're going to also hit a wall. And that might be sometime down the road. And I don't know when that wall is going to come. But he's going to come home late, or she's going to have something that triggered her pain. And when you, when you hit that wall, you, you might throw up those old barriers and you say, I can't do this anymore. It's too painful. It's too hurtful. This may even be a year down the road. And you say, I thought we were over this. No, no, no. What happened is you hit the wall. And we need to get some nutrients inside of you so you can make it through this wall. And so maybe you need a banana. Maybe you need some fruit. Maybe you need something to strengthen you right now. And so to couples who've been making it and it's been going well, that banana or that fruit might be coming in for a session of therapy. Or it might be uh, openly looking at what's occurred in the last few weeks or last few months to maybe trigger whatever's occurred here. And then we quickly get back on the run because what happens is you will work your way through that wall and you'll hit the point where you finish the marathon. Absolutely. And I, I love the analogy of the marathon. I just finished watching a documentary on uh, summiting Mount Everest and how they have to spend weeks and weeks acclimatizing and adjusting their bodies and having their bodies so they go up, then they come back, then they go up and they come back before they can summit. And it, it's just such a fascinating process and some very strong parallels to long-term recovery because you are really acclimatizing or adjusting or learning to, to live with a deeper form of connection. You're learning to live with tolerating a little bit more distress and uncertainty, learning how to live at higher levels of emotion. And and that kind of a thing doesn't necessarily just happen immediately. And so, you know, I'm thinking about a, um, a case or a, a quick example that Todd Olson, who's one of the founders of the Lifestar program, shared with me about a couple who had been, uh, I, I believe they'd been in recovery probably three years or so, and, and he hadn't had any slips with pornography in quite some time, you know, probably a year or two. And he, uh, he was driving home from a meeting. Uh, the meeting had gotten out at uh, around 7 o'clock, and he had told his wife he would be home at 8 o'clock because he thought the meeting was going to be over at that point. Well, it got out an hour early. He and a bunch of his coworkers went out to grab some dessert, and then he was driving back home. He calls his wife and he says, "And he says, hey, I'm on my way home. And, and uh, she's all, oh, you just leaving the meeting? He said, yeah, we just barely got out of the meeting. Now, on the Richter scale of, uh, of lies, that certainly isn't at the same level as you know hiding an affair or something like that. But for him and the level of sensitivity that he was at in his recovery, he knew that he had misrepresented where he was, that he wasn't leaving the meeting, that he was actually just coming home from getting dessert. And so he got home and he said to his wife, I uh, actually misrepresented, I, I, I lied to you. I, I was coming home from getting dessert. Well, she was, she was hurt by that. And they talked about it. And here's what he learned from that. 
all of a sudden that discussion translated into them talking about why is it so hard for you to ask for what you need? Do you believe that it's not okay for you to go do something nice for yourself or to be with friends? Where's the shame in that? What makes it hard for you to believe that you're not worthy of me being able to support you going to get something that would be fun for you? It opened up a whole new discussion for him on the fact that he doesn't believe that what he wants would matter to his wife, that he felt shame that he couldn't say, I would like to get ice cream instead of just rushing home to be with you. And this was a powerful discussion on them building more intimacy and her being able to say to him, I want you to relax. I want you to connect with your friends. I want you to do something fun for yourself. And this was a huge trigger into his addiction in the past, which was he would hide and stuff and pretend and act like he didn't have any needs. And then he would go act out out of all that shame. And this was a fabulous example of what happens to couples in long-term recovery. And I love that part of this story. There's an underlying part there that I don't know how we can articulate it other than saying, I want you to be happy. Yeah. Now, the question is, can our listeners say that about their spouse? And so to our listeners, I invite you to consider that question. Do you genuinely want your spouse to be happy? And sometimes people say, I'm not ready for that because they've caused me so much pain. I want them to feel the pain of it. My pain. I want them to feel the pain. Long-term recovery, you genuinely shift that from the pain to, of course, I want what's best for you. And that's a significant shift for some couples because either direction, they have been limiting the amount of joy and happiness that they can have. And that's what pornography does. All by itself, pornography is a joy inhibitor. It, it, It just is. I am convinced that it makes people feel out of control, and unfortunately, it destroys their happiness. That's right. Now, when they're in recovery, of course, who wouldn't want their spouse to be happy? Who would not want that? Because the happier the spouse, who leaves a happy marriage? Right. That doesn't happen. We leave marriages where we're unsatisfied, where we've got conflict and tension, and where there's constant betrayal or lying or deceit. Those are the kind of marriages that that, the consistency, it just wears and erodes, erodes away the intimacy. So we're looking the other side of this. I want my spouse to be happy, and I love that story because of that. He was able to, he he didn't even know if he he could tell the truth about going to get ice cream for whatever reason that he was not able to say, I just had some ice cream and then I came home. Right. And those are the kind of slips that we see couples in long-term recovery having. And if he was just to say, well, that's not even about pornography. Like that, that's such a, that's such a, you know, a minimal type of slip compared to what I used to struggle with. But that little deception. Yep. And well, and, and that, and if he had given up on that and not been honest about it, he would not have discovered how his wife really felt about him one, which he needed to hear. And also about himself, why he has such a hard time, how he's disowned that part of himself. And, and that's a critical long-term recovery piece, which is um, becoming whole as a person and as a couple and really growing together and creating that, that stronger bond. And, and as we continue on and we get ready to the, close up this series, one of the things I want to say, Jeff, is because pornography is not an individual issue when you're married, it's a couple issue. Because it significantly influences the spouse. I mean, it's not just the individual. It's a couple issue now. Two individuals working on their individual selves and the couple. And when I say this, I have met some people who can't let go of the pain. They refuse to let go of the pain. 
And if that is, if you find yourself in that category, it means that there's something that's not yet happening inside of you and in the relationship. Either the emotional intimacy and the congruity that we've talked about before is not occurring, or it may be that you are just, you're so fearful. And I've met women who've struggled with that. They're so fearful that they can't let it go. Right. And if that, if you fall into that category, the, remember to listen to those earlier ones, the addiction and intimacy, how to communicate. Because if those things are happening, you've got to start looking at some of these measuring sticks to see if that progress is being made. And that, that personal healing, it can occur, but it's going to require that trust that we've talked about. It's going to require that openness. And if couples will do that, and, and if they'll work at it together, they can make it through this. Yeah. And if- if you're finding yourself stuck, like you're saying, Kevin, if you're finding yourself stuck in this process, that you can't move forward, then again, I know that we're both therapists and we work a lot with counseling, but I really believe that sometimes it can be critical to sit across from someone who's compassionate, who's trained, and who doesn't have the blind spots that you do for your life. And they can help you understand some of those self-defeating beliefs and things that make it hard for you to reach, make it hard for you to trust, make it hard for you to, to reach out and, and move forward. So many partners that I work with um, are, are trauma survivors. They've, they've come from emotionally disconnected families. They've been abused or abandoned. They've had relationship betrayals. They've had all kinds of things that form the way they think about the world, the way they think about relationships, the way they think about intimacy themselves believing that someone maybe can't ever be there for them, these universal beliefs they have about people and relationships. And th- that's part of that individual recovery process that has to be in place. And those things can can unintentionally hold up the relationship. And so I, I like what you're saying, that that those have to be confronted and looked at in a gentle way to open up the path for the couple. And so in long-term recovery, if you're finding that you're still stuck in these places, those are the kind of blocks you need to look at because the, 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 the addict can do everything they can do to heal and undo the addiction. But if he and his partner are not willing to, to really look at how they do closeness, attachment, intimacy, sharing, and don't, don't do that work, then the couple's going to be stuck still. And what will happen is, like my marathon analogy, they'll hit the wall and they won't know how to make it through it, so they'll quit. That's we, right. We tried, but I, I just I, I couldn't run the full twenty six. And there'll be a high rate of relapse back right. into those old patterns of addiction. And that's when they begin to feel hopeless. Yeah. And so so don't be too discouraged by the roadblocks or by the wall that you will hit. Step back, observe them, and as you observe them, just learn from them. And if you get too stuck, then go back to therapy. If you haven't been, talk with people who you trust, who understand the process. And they're going to really what they're going to explain is how to help you through that wall, how to communicate through each other to each other through those needs. And and that's where the real long term progress makes it. Because when I was running my marathon, I hit the wall at 18, and and literally I stopped to get some food. And when I tried to run again, every muscle inside of me was so tight. I literally was like the Tin Man from. Um, the Wizard of the Oz. The Wizard of That's Oz. Right. And I was literally going, ear, ear, and it felt that way, Jeff. It was like crazy. And then I started going, and then it happened a mile later. I found that a banana changed the whole thing. I finished strong. And, and literally the last two miles, I passed 11 people in, in, in this four-hour run, not quite four hours. And it was one of those experiences where I look at it and I think, that's one of the hardest things I've ever done physically. And what I tell my clients is this is going to be your most difficult, one of the most difficult experiences of your life. I promise you that there's going to be walls 
and you can make it through that. But we got to make sure that we keep nurturing and nutrients inside of you. And I have never met a couple that has done the long-term recovery that regretted it, that wished that that had never happened, that that was just too brutal. So, you know, we, we hope to convey a sense of hope in this vision portion of our of our program. We really want to convey the message that this is work that's worth doing. You will not be the same because you will be a better version of you and a better version of your couple relationship. We've come from the you know the first episode on myths about pornography all the way through what to do in the initial crisis, the CPR and the first date and trying to stabilize the relationship and how to start to organize this a little bit and then starting to build the threads of intimacy and rebuilding the relationship. And so, you know, we've covered a lot of a lot of ground in six hours or so that for most couples will take six months to a year plus three to five years on down the road as they expand this and do this work. But the good news is, is that the more they do the work and the more they stay in it, the less painful it becomes. And most people stop doing it because of the wall. They, they, they hit so many walls that it's too hard. And like Winston Churchill said, if you feel like you're going through hell, keep going. Just keep moving forward, and this will get better with the proper supports and help. You know, and if I can make any concluding remarks, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to spend it with us. And let me just conclude with uh, just a final thought for you. Everybody needs somebody to believe in them. And somebody needs to believe in you as an individual, and somebody needs to believe in you and your relationship. And if you can give a gift to each other, believe in your relationship. It may be one of the hardest things that you will do because especially if you're just going through this and you're just new to this process and you're just discovering this, but if you will have just that, just that small belief, I'm just going to try. I'm gonna, I don't know all the answers. We're going to listen to these CDs together. We're going to talk about it. We're going to work. We're going to learn to open up. We're going to learn to attach to each other. We're going to learn to be intimate with each other. I believe in you because these processes that we've talked about work. And so if I can just leave any message in this whole thing that we've talked, believe in each other. And, 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 and even if it doesn't work out, you, the fact that you tried with all your heart in believing in each other, you've done the best you can. And my experience is when you believe in each other, you actually do make it. It does work out. Thank you, Kevin. Well, this concludes the six-part series for Strengthening Recovery Through Strengthening Marriage, Healing from Pornography Addiction. I'm Jeff Stewart. And Dr. Kevin Skinner. I thank you. We thank you. And uh, if you have questions, don't hesitate to ask us. God bless you guys in your efforts.